Hello and welcome to The Scan. We're excited to bring you this episode from the George Institute for Global Health. In this episode of The Scan's World Collide series, she and Jaime discuss what it means to go viral and the role of social media in increasing impact of work. They talk about rejection and being brave and explore the pros and cons of various processes for different journals. Also announcing Jaime's new position. A few things that just came to mind as I was five minutes before we start. Um, things that I, I was thinking about. One of them was a question that a postdoc who is working with me now asked me. I mean, she just started to work with me. We had a, one of our sort of onboarding meeting last week. And I think it was just um, a few days after uh, my short essay in The Lancet on when Dignity Meets Evidence came out. Um, and she asked me, how does an article go viral? You're getting good at that. It, it seems, and I'm not sure I know have a good explanation. So I struggle to explain to her what <laughs> what might be going on, which I found, you know, interesting. First, it was an interesting question that I hadn't thought about, and I think it's something worth thinking about. Uh, <laughs> what what that means, um, because to my mind, I mean, that something goes viral could be a good thing or a bad thing. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not a. Uh, it's a neutral qualification. It's not necessarily something positive, right? Um, context here for our for our for our audience. Uh, maybe you can do a quick summary of what this article article was about, and 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 the perception of it. And then I'll, it makes me think I will connect that then later to to that's an example of an article going by viral. But uh, one reader I want to share with you yesterday was the on the other end uh, the peer reviewer side of uh, and getting so long and very so trapped and, and so difficult. Yeah. So maybe we can tap today onto those two streams. Yeah, that, that, that would be interesting to talk about. So, so this article um, that was described as going viral um, was a short essay, about 1,600 words in The Lancet, titled When Dignity Meets Evidence. Um, and it was written pretty much, uh, the first draft was um, the introduction section of a successful fellowship application. So I just, so right, I just copied and pasted the introduction <laughs> of the fellowship and I started to then re- redo it to work it into an essay. And the broad argument is essentially that in a lot of the discussions we have around um, knowledge practices or epistemic injustices in global health or health equity or health policy or medicine, a lot of it can be grouped under concerns for the dignity of people as knowers, as people mm-hmm. who know things and ought to be respected in that capacity. Whether mm-hmm. it is issues around colonization, which treated certain people as less than um, in terms of being knowers and interpreters of knowledge, whether it is between a doctor and a patient, uh, a patient treated as someone who doesn't know enough to, to make sense of their reality or to contribute to how they are cared for, or whether it's in sense of a researcher and the community, where the researcher assumes automatically that they are entering into a blank slate in terms of knowledge and just proceeds as if people there don't know anything. Anyway, along a broad range of things um, and circumstances and scenarios, 
our concerns for knowledge, uh, practices that are um, just and fair, can be grouped under what I called DBT-based practices. And so this this essay basically makes that argument and then draws attention to um, what I think of as a corollary um, and perhaps also a threat slightly to to dignity-based practice, um, which is evidence-based practice and and that movement of evidence-based medicine, which in some way did a lot of good in terms of disciplining uh, the evidence generation process. But at the same time, can lead to a situation in which marginalized people are not treated with respect. And I was very fascinated by, and I've been fascinated for a long time, about just how successful that movement had been in entrenching themselves into the existing knowledge infrastructure and systems of medicine and subsequently of policy making. Um, that it became a language, um, doctors, patients, politicians, policymakers, you know, practitioners used daily the language of evidence-based medicine. And I was interested in what lesson can be learned, frankly, from how they went about making their strategy mm-hmm. so successful, and, and what lessons can be learned for those of us who are thinking about dignity-based practice corollary to that. Uh, what lessons can we learn from the strategies they use to be so successful? So that that's the broad. Summary of that essay. Good. And with that introduction, that is a went viral. And when you say went viral, what happened? What happened? So I, I, th- I think the virality began <laughs> with Eric Topol. Eric Topol is a famous US cardiologist. He was the first person to tweet it. Oh, wow. And, and whatever Eric Topol tweets gets retweeted a lot, <laughs> gets read a lot, gets commented on a lot. And, and there's a way he tweets things that sort of he color codes the part of the text that really caught his interest. So he did that color coding of much of the essay. If I, so as I, if I, it was his tweet that I saw that made me realize that the article had been published because I didn't know it was already out. So you mentioned that Eric Topol, which um, well, let's, let's use the word influencer. One of the things that he does is he reads. And secondly, he highlights what he considers important. So he turned a, a very kind of influential uh, voice during COVID as well. So he that's a, a series of cardiovascular uh, of research, I would say primarily around cardiovascular. I think you can add to your CV. My 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 publication got picked up by Eric Topol. Eric Topol, yeah, I should, I should do that. I didn't think about doing that. Now you give me an idea. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So then what happened after that? So he, he put it out there, right? And, um, and with that out there meant that something that was traditionally in the pages of a journal, now online, yeah. became yeah. to multiple audiences, right? Yeah, multiple, many, many. He has hundreds of thousands of followers. So there's lots, lots of people got to read it, which um, I thought was, was a great outcome. Again, I was surprised slightly because I didn't expect that it would be something that Eric Tupo would pick up, but he did pick it up. I, I've never even considered him picking up anything I write. It was just a complete surprise to me. Um, and then I also tweeted it my, through my own handle, and it also got picked up a lot um, through that. And what I noticed was um, that a lot of the of Eric Topol's, a lot of people who retweeted what Eric Topol had tweeted or commented on it, were commenting on it and retweeting it from a perspective of being patient or being allies to patients. So, so I think in part because Eric is a clinician, um, a lot of his following is yep. clinical, which would include doctors and patients. So lots, the, the patient part of that article got a lot of 
of resonance. And I got emails from people who I'm sure wouldn't have read it had Eric Topol not tweeted it. Because um, the people who don't follow me, but apparently saw it and read it. Um, and, and interestingly, those who, who, who picked it up from my own tweet were commenting on the more global health, health inequity, sort of more policy right. level of, of, right. of what I was writing. So it, 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 it spoke to two audiences. And I was saying to one of my friends that I hadn't, while the patient angle was important, I was just using that as an example, or as a way of making the argument about broader inequalities. I wasn't thinking primarily about patients. When I was writing the essay, I was thinking more about policy things, systemic things, and using the relationship between a doctor and a patient to illustrate um, the distance that could exist between a, 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 a credentialed knower and an uncredentialed Noah, right? Um, so I just, I thought that was interesting that that happened to that article and I didn't see it coming. I couldn't have predicted it at all. Tell me about then this reflection more with your students. So what, 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 what brought up the question? Yeah, it was, it was the fact that it got viral. So she, so, so uh, she was just starting a new one. We're talking about career plans and building a career and advice, etc., on how to sort of strategize from now, um, going forward. And then she asked me this question that, you know, this your article, the articles sometimes go viral. Um, mm. Although no, I don't have many articles that have gone viral, maybe two or three. Not maybe four. This came as a surprise to me and I was thinking about it. What, what about this article? Um, I, and I think a part of it is that it, it was, um, it was an argument. It was an argument with a, for whom I had a clear audience in my head. It's like there were people I wanted to talk to. And I sort of knew how they think, because they are people like me in many ways. So I, I know where their heads are at, perhaps, and so I could sort of aim it at them. It was very well edited. Uh, because I sat with it for a long time. And because there was an, an initial version that had gone out for, you know, for as a fellowship application. So the text itself is a text that I was very familiar with and I'd spent a lot of time ruminating over. And then it was submitted to a, to a section of the Lancet that doesn't go to peer review. So here, hence, you know, your, your peer review angle. So, so the section of the Lancet where it's published, um, submissions to that section are invited. So this was an invited essay. Right. The right. Um, and for, for that section, it doesn't go to peer review, but it gets really, really edited by an in-house senior editor. Um, so, so, so there was a lot of back and forth, even after that full final draft, there was a lot of back and forth. And she kept give, giving me the opportunity to change anything I want to change, which means that I would then read it again. And I would sort of change one word or change one sentence or insert one sentence. So there was a lot of just micro-editing involved in the, in the piece itself, um, which made me think about peer review. That could peer review have destroyed the essay, right? <laughs> In other words, yeah. are, are there things that we shouldn't be sending to peer review, but just to an editor who can deeply read and engage with the, with the author for certain kinds of work? Of course, not, not research papers or things like that, but so commentaries, you know, pieces that are making an argument. And what did the students say? So, I, well, I, I don't have a future then, or... <laughs> <laughs> What are the chances of me becoming viral if that's the career path that we are on to? No, I, I, I hope I, I inspired a bit of 
of confidence in her that she could do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something I often say to, to people that, you know, that um, especially students um, and people who work with me, that, that a very big chunk of genius is confidence. Right? That if you believe you can do something, uh, and believe you can do it really, really, really well, then you at least start to try to do it really well. You may fail, but you at least would start. I think many people who don't aim to do something really well don't believe they can do it really well, so that they don't even start to try. So I think there's a lot of to be said for the confidence that you could write something great and then sort of just then try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I see that so yeah, kind of extremely way, but that's a very important message for people to believe that you can do you do your best. Yeah. Because unfortunately, on the other end, you have to be happy with that moment. Because on the other end, the amount of failures and negative responses that we get in this business is so high that if you don't come to terms with yourself, it can be damaging. So we can yeah. damage in terms of your motivation, your own perception of whether you're doing things well. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I used to say kind of on where, where I sit at or where I come from, like, why am I in this business? So I mm. felt like an adrenaline junkie. That I want to get into the kind of into the ideas generation. I want to get into the discussion. Make sure that we can extract the best possible research question and and convince the other, yeah. convince the other that uh, in, in this case the reviewer or the panel that uh, is is worth investing on us. But that that and that to me that's the satisfaction point. Mm. And uh, because if I move the timeline, that satisfaction should be. When I get a decision, oh my God, uh, all the rejections that I get. I think it's, for me, it's a mental nudge that the job, doing the job the, the, as the best possible in standards that I can, the highest possible, the highest quality that we could possibly attain as a team. And that is the point of accomplishment. I know it's easier saying that I don't, but if that is you believe on yourself that you're giving the best, and that's your accomplishment, um, I suppose that you generate this buffer so that when failures come or when rejections come or the negative results come, there's something good on you. I mean, you, 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 can, you can put that under your belt. You did your best. And because it's, it's a very competitive environment. So I'm glad that you were able, able to turn the, the episode or the experience with this very junior person in that particular aspect and, and, and take something positive out of, out of it. Let's go back to Eric Topol and, and review because uh, in a way, and, and the role of journals, that's something that comes, keeps coming back to us and the role of journals. So, so if Eric Topol is going to be the curator of what is good or what is bad, or for that matter, uh, or not only the curator, but uh, like an advanced version of chat GPT, right? So he extracts and he tells it. <laughs> he highlights it. Right? So... Yeah. Why do we need journals then? <laughs> we just need Eric to read and tell us this is it. Yeah. I, I've sitting on the consumer end of Eric Top. I say I'm not gonna dig into the COVID. I it's not my cup of tea to go into the molecular basis. Hmm. And he has such a breadth of, of uh interest. It can be molecular, it can be at one point um yeah, trials and the efficacy of uh, vaccines, and then it can be digital health. And I come to him like, I consider myself like a slow reader in any language, more so in English. So the amount and the capacity to consume so much 
literature yeah. A1 has. And, uh, but anyhow, so is an individual the curator or, or there's a role for journals? And then with that, we enter then onto the peer review process. <laughs> you know, th there's a part of me that's always felt, and I still do, and I must have said this before during one of our conversations, that, that it may be wise for journals to get out of the research publishing business, or at least to, to leave the research publishing business to mega journals, so plus one BMJ open, you know, that mega journals, just create a machine and let them publish it. But to leave discussions, debates, analysis, ideas to journals, to turn journals into magazines, basically. Um, and then magazines will disappear, as magazines have largely disappeared now. Um, in other words, I, I'm agreeing with you slightly that perhaps journals uh, need to go, or at least if, if they were to remain, they should become magazines. And magazines are not sustainable, or at least have not been so a sustainable model. Remember about 20 years ago, Time was a big magazine. Everyone read Time magazine. People bought hard copies. People had stacks in their house. And all of that mm -hmm. has gone. Um, mm -hmm. And now what we are left with, uh, a few writers for the Atlantic, a few writers for the New York Times, a few writers for big magazines, whom we read. Right? Hardly does anyone say, I read time. You could say, I read, you know, not, uh, some, uh, David Klein or something. Um, and you read them because you follow them somehow. Or you receive an alert in your email box that they, that author has written something. Or you follow them on Twitter so you know when they've written something. Right? So I think there's a sense in which we, we need either to follow individuals who write or to follow individuals who curate individuals who write or to do both. So in that sense, like Eric Topo does something really, really great, which again is something that sits on top of journals. Right? Um, mm -hmm. so we can't read everything. And at some level, we have to trust that someone makes good judgment on our behalf. That's a fact of human existence and social organization. We trust that some people make good decisions on our behalf. We elect legislatures, we elect parliaments, we elect people to, to make decisions on our behalf, right? And I think in the knowledge space as well, we do that implicitly, right? We say that three or four people I follow because whatever they find interesting, I should read. Mm -hmm. I do that. Um, so in a sense, I've outsourced <laughs> my, my search to them and I've cut costs, right? I'm not searching every day reading every little bit because Eric Topol is doing it for me and someone pays him, hopefully, for doing that. So someone pays him to help me without me having to pay directly. So anyway, so I, I do I do believe that people like Eric are important and I hope that there are more people like that, especially more diverse people like that, sort of people from different parts of the world or from with different leanings or, or backgrounds who are doing the curating and whom people recognize as curators and look to, to curate for them. But I think journals are need those kinds of things to sit on top of them if they even if, if they remain if, if they continue to exist as they are now which I mm. think they will they need people like that just like magazines it's interesting isn't it I suppose that's the element of, of quality there's so much production well production of science and production of research papers and manuscripts the output is, is, is increasing and therefore this extra services of a curation service, it, it yeah. can be. 
But let's let's look at the angle also on the other side of the equation, that for this amount of research knowledge to become so rapidly available and in masses, there's an even bigger and larger batch of material that don't get it through and don't make it to the journey. So on one end, part of the conversation is how to be much more effective with handling the good things that come out. But for every good thing that come out, there are hundreds that do never see the light, but are part are using, are using the engine, are using the machine, are using the factory. Yeah. And last night I was reading a paper on peer review and comments like, um, why would I bother? Yeah. I mean, exponentially speaking, like, uh, I don't know, uh, some facts, like uh, there were millions of, of uh, research articles published in year not so long ago, let's say five to 10 years ago, and that amount has been triplicated in the last yeah. few years. So volume is a, is a matter. And then time. And I have somebody did the exercise of just costing or putting, converting the time of the peer review process in three countries. I think it was, it was the, obviously the USA, the UK, and there was another country I, I don't remember. But the billion of hours of individuals that give their time for free to the machine to check through, to serve like, um, what's what? I think we will explain in more details about what's the preview system, but pretty much for every single paper that turns out, turns up on the scientific literature, the model is that there are, they has to go through independent set of files to guarantee its quality and its contribution to science. So, but that independent set of files is, is made by, by, uh, largely by academics who will not get paid by the job. Uh, which in, which in support is part of your citizenship that we ought to, to contribute back to science, um, in that way. But, uh, but now the machine is utterly, I wouldn't say inefficient, but it's obvious it's massive. It's massive. And with that, the price is, is, uh, the costs are coming. So people are asked to do more and, uh, and there's more and more coming. And there's no signs of that curve uh, going back. So will peer review fail? And uh, there's some models that are changing or not. Some people suggest in that article that we should be giving more options to junior people to give their voices, but then editors kind of do not appreciate the voice of junior people. Time and all and all with the, the other part of the equation, uh, the system is, is, is challenging in the sense that um, it's authors produce the science, then they give it to an outlet uh, it gets reviewed and that outlet it's, it's, it's a for-profit company. So some people say, no, I'm going to just do a review for non-for-profit journal. Very complex on very front, but just on the quality of the review, fundamentally, there's an element of capacity, large, large numbers being produced and not having enough capacity to maintain a high quality process. And uh, where do we go from there? As, as an editor, it's something I think about almost every day. As you were saying, the, the assumption from, you know, when peer review sort of became a thing in, in sort of 1930s or 40s, or it wasn't a thing until relatively recently. Science, you know, used to be as peer reviewed as it is currently peer reviewed. Um, it, it was in part because the community of people whom a journal serves, um, uh, felt it was of value to sort of read it and review it or comment on it before it became published. When journals started, it was the idea of a journal was just to allow other people to read your work. 
So it was small directing that we are writing and then mm-hmm. the journal then sends out to people to read. And often it's then discussed after that or discussed in smaller groups. But but with peer review, there was this quality check. And I think it was partly because it was growing. The community was growing. It was no longer a small, smallish group of people uh, from whom you could get direct feedback. It was now you could sort of throw your article into the world and then it just grows on from there. Whereas <laughs> before it would come back to you. Um, so so you, de- you de- needed a control measure before it goes out into that world and, and, and develop feet and run off. And in, in that world, it was, it was in many ways, um, it was a world of really proper elites. It was a world of intellectual elites. These people, um, were broadly well paid by whomever employed them. They were often, um, had patrons or people that supported their work in one form or another. Um, but it was a small group of, it was, you know, it was a much smaller group of people than it is now. And I think academia has gone through a phase sort of in the last, 20, 25 years, where many, many, many more people have become academic, and a large proportion of academics no longer have the kind of career, job, and income security that academics used to have by virtue of being academics, um, say, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And with that comes the need to rethink the the expectation that everybody who is an academic is tenured. (laughs) Is well paid yeah. and is in fact paid to do peer review because they used to right. be, in a sense, used to be part of, as you said, your responsibility to your community you belong to, um, where right. you assume that, that your payment pays for that. Mm-hmm. And in that world, I have to mention, in that world as well, journals used to be owned by those communities or by yeah. members of those communities. In other words, it wasn't journals were not the were not big business that they are today. The BMG, for example, was owned by the British Medical Association. Mm. So the journal was was a business for them that helped them get money to run the association. Right. And the association right. served the doctors and the academics so that they were willing to invest their time in it because it came back to them in the form of service that an association provides for them. So, so this, the, the journals used to be community. Now they are no yeah. longer community. They are now big business. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. at the time, it didn't feel extractive as it is today, which also means that there is a drive for growth that wasn't necessarily as strong as it used to be. Um, now I know of journals that we we publish pretty much anything, just submit because it, it will bring money. And I believe, I still believe very strongly that that we either would cho- we should either choose to go back to a world in which journals were small and had a community that they served and everyone who published there, who reviews for them, feel like they are part of that community. The, that world may have left us, unfortunately, or we may have left that world. That world may be in the past. <laughs> in which case, the other alter- alternative, as I was describing earlier, is that we accept that there should be big journals and big journals should be faceless, right? It should just be a huge machine. And then it, it, small journals that serve communities. You know, it, it would make sense for the George Institute, for example, to have its own journal. Because if the George Institute had existed, say, 80 years ago, or 100 years ago, it would likely have had its own journal for two reasons, which was the same reason why journals emerged. One, um, the academics who were working were dispersed geographically. Right. So they couldn't meet uh, physically 
regularly, you know. So he just created a journal. That was how the first journal was founded um, in the in the 17th century. It was founded because the, the academics who were involved in a collective enterprise were too dispersed in Europe that they needed to create a platform that they could all submit their work to and then they could read. Second reason why I think the judge would have wanted to have a journal is that the kinds of things that people at the judge are talking about are things that are common. It's not just that they are geographically dispersed. They are united in a common purpose, very largely. Whether it's methodological or, 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 or in terms of the issue of interest, there, there's a common thing, which will make sense for the judge, for example, to have a journal. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. But in, in, mm. in, in a world that, you know, I designed, say, in 20 years time, <laughs> places like the judge will have its own journal. There will be a judge institute journal for health or something. And then there will be an editorial committee and board, and, and it would all be wrong. So in that sense, you know, I, I still believe very strongly in the idea of small platforms for exchange, especially of things that we mutually care about and want to discuss, have a discussion about. And then to leave things that are a bit more arcane, a bit more, you know, big to mega journals to handle. That is still my favorite preferred model. What material will go? To the big under that uh, hypothetical world, yeah. what type of articles will go to those big, large journals, and what type of articles will be more kind of the? I understand the 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 the, the second tier, which journals turning more into a magazine, right? While you're doing yeah. collaboration. So so a um, so a, a, a category of papers that should go to be to mega journals is all the global burden of disease studies. Right. Should go there. Yeah. Nobody wants to have a micro conversation about the global no, disease study. You could, you could write editorials about it in smaller journals. But sort of just all those grand studies like that. Like right? a, a big um, uh, multi country trial on the effectiveness of paracetamol on back pain. Right, right, right. So, right. so that kind of big papers, papers that are today the kind of papers that, you know, uh, elite journals want to publish, right? Right. Because they right, get right. popular. I would rather publish them in mega journals. But a, a, an example, and this is slightly self-serving, right? So, so I did this polypio paper, right? Mm. Um, which in many ways was written and conceived as a paper in conversation with people who do polypio work. A good chunk of them are judging institute people, right? So it's the kind of paper that I would want to publish in the, in a in a judge institute journal. Right. Right. Because there are the people in my head, at least, for whom it is aimed, and, and people that they are in network with who do similar work. Right. So, so there right. is, right. so in that sense, I'll, I'll put it there. Or put it in a journal of people who run program, cardiovascular programs. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's difficult to separate um, in that sense. But, but there's, uh, it's, there's a vague sense that, that, that some journals are in conversation, some papers are in conversation. And some people are not in conversation with people. Yeah, and yeah. just recognize who you are in conversation with and put it where they are. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because then that, that offers the, the other elephant in the room is this element of you use the word prestige, but the demand or expectations that if, if you're a good academic, you should have your papers in those mega. Yeah. Mega journals, right? So, but what is your role of as academic is to generate things to for the mega journals, or is kind of to engage 
having this now disseminate and, and, and those kind of other discussions. So not everything has to be discovery. And I was thinking on, on, on this kind of type of family journals, in a way, perhaps there is a move towards that. So you have uh, maybe from the donor side, so Bill Gates, they have the journals. Yep. Um, and they say, look, we're giving you the money, so we expect you to contribute to this, and uh, it shouldn't be an, an obstacle. Yep. Uh, Welcome has, Welcome uh, previously, Welcome Trust, they have their own journal as well. We give you money, feel free to come here. I mean, just to facilitate that element or removing that element of status or preference. It's just yep. uh, the knowledge that gets produced col uh, collectively yep. with the funding that we support or to have a place. So here it is. And these are web-based and kind of online-based journals where it says, yeah, part of the, you can like a repository pretty much, right? And one of those is taking me a year to find reviewers as well. So it's, it's <laughs> the other challenge. So why not? And then we talk about two things. One is the kind of the most recent move of e-life, right? So are you aware of that? So yeah. uh, what does it mean and what is different from today? So can you tell from your end, how do you see that? So, so if, if, I, if, I, if I know exactly what you're talking about, is that, is that the model of... Um, you submit and it's published and then the peer review is done subsequently, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so that's how they operate. And I think it was first done by uh, a group called Faculty 1000, F1000. They were the first group to sort of try out that idea. Um, which, which I think is interesting. Again, I, I, it's another, I, another way of reimagining the future of journals. Um, which is to say that your a work that you've published is not the, necessarily the final version of it. Mm -hmm. I have papers. I mean, that one of the papers in my PhD, for the first paper in my PhD, I wish I could go and rewrite it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could rewrite it. Because there are things I want to change. There are things I want to say in a better way, right? But, but in, in, in our current world, when it's out, it's final. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think we, technology, we are technologically at a place where that shouldn't be necessary. Right? Right. Technologically, I, I should be able to go and say to the editor, look, this sentence could have been better written this way. This paragraph should have highlighted this. Um, this example works better oh. than the one I gave. I mean, that, that, that we should have that possibility. Mm. And for me, mm -hmm. where I think the, the publish and then peer review, sort of post-publication peer review in that sense, where it makes sense is that at least it, it begins to open up the space for that kind of imagination. To say, okay, um, we can, we can be revisited, revisited. We might send it out to another peer reviewer after you've done your edit, say after five years that it came out. And then we'll peer review it again and it will be republished. I mean, they, they sh we should be able to live in that world. That's what I like mm. about that. Um, now, you, you mentioned the example. Sorry, you wanted to say something. No, no, no. But, uh, carry on with the example. Because then I, 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 when I think you're right on that model in that that's um, open peer review. So, uh, yeah. rephrasing what you said is basically you submit to a journal, yeah. they publish it online, yeah. so it's accessible. People can read it. And perhaps nowadays it's the preprint um, world. Maybe that was uh, the. Early. And then, and then they feed like this kind of intellectual, scientific, um, external eyes of where we'll give it a 
a yes or a go. It's like Facebook. We'll give a like or not like. So for us, the metric, if we get two likes, it's like if somebody else that you don't know assesses yeah. your work and finds it, okay, um, yeah. Yeah, good enough. And therefore, good enough, it has a, a seal of trust or confidence, and therefore it goes into another database. So, so the journal offers you a platform. You put it there. Some of them will get likes and likes. Those who get the likes move on to this something that is this database where it's uh, yeah. published, you can put part because they are not printed. And they are on the web, but they have been assessed. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe I want to push more because uh, on eLife, what I don't understand is what is different from that model. eLife is now saying, we're going to accept everything and we're going to go call it published. I think, I think that's saying. And uh, yeah. we have somewhat similar to what F1000 is. And for that matter, F1000 is the platform for welcome journals. And it's yeah. the same platform, I think, for Gates um, yeah. journals. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Um... So, so in BMG Global Health, something that I um, often say openly is that um, we publish about 15% of papers submitted to BMG Global Health. Right? Mm. Um, but, you know, of the 85% that we reject, um, we reject, you know, almost all of them before peer review. In other words, if your paper goes to peer review in BMG Global, it's, it will be on, it's very unlikely that it's not published at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's, a, there's a certain quality, scope, interest, you know, uh, relevance, screening that happens at the beginning. But once we, we commit to the paper to go through peer review, it's almost certain. Not always. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a sort of two, three in a hundred yeah. that get rejected. At the end of theory, but it's rare. Mm-hmm. Um, which I suspect is part of the model of, of, you know, eLife or et cetera, where there's an editorial screening at the beginning to say, do we want this or not? And if that's, if that is well done enough, for the most part, it would almost certainly survive peer review. In other words, it, it makes sense to put it online and then let the peer review happen. Now, in, in the odd rare paper, a lot of change happens, but that's not common. Yeah, yeah, it's not common. Um, a lot of the change that happens, is, you know, it's it's bearable. Now there is, you know, for me, my reticence uh, for that model, part of my holdback, is that I think there's still a part of me that wants to keep the sausage making away from public eye. You know, you, you don't want everyone to see all the all the messiness. <laughs> Yeah. That goes into creating yeah. a fine paper. Like, you know, you want to hide that. Um, but it, people argue that, you know, that's, you be transparent, transparency is good. And I'm not sure, again, that transparency is always a good thing, especially, you know, for sausage, sausage making. You know, people say, you know, you don't yeah. see all yeah. the mess of that. I would say we, we could go endlessly because, I mean, what would it take? Because in a way, we, we started with Eric Topples and, and his example of him being a yeah. curator. And what you're telling to me is, is as a sausage maker, sausage or what is it? Yeah. Sausage, yeah. (laughs) Um, Maker, (laughs) that one. (laughs) You're exerting as well. And uh, because you care, this, this element of, of, of curation as well, but less visible, I suppose, and more behind the scenes than this other person, which in contrast, that's something we're losing, um, with this, all of this large mass, 
journals that had to handle masses and masses, right? And um, I'm getting I'm getting scared because from personal experience, when I get an acceptance within a week, I'm like, oh, no. no. <laughs> I uh, really no, I want to withdraw my submission and like, yeah. I choose right or not. It got endless. A, a couple of reminders because you were making it to the hour. Um, one is for the record. Uh, this is the first conversation that we're having since my situation changed. So, and I have to say thank you, Shay, because I still feel comfortable talking to you. Yeah. And for the audience, I'll in Shay's team. So I'm a peace collaborator in his school from May onwards. So, uh, thank you for, for, for all your support and companionship. And uh, here we are still uh, enjoying these this chats. There is from yeah. home and on the go. Yeah. And I'm invite you to reflect on that now, but I want it to, to be open. So people say, oh, no, here's Jaime asking nice questions. No, it, it's still a space of... The way you didn't put it is that you're going to become my boss, which is actually the, the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so if anything, if anything... <laughs> <laughs> People shouldn't expect you to be nice to me out of compulsion. <laughs> no, no, no. I keep, I keep learning with all my, my, my colleagues and my friends. So, so I, I, I do value this space because of that opportunity to learn and share that learning, share, share those, those examples, those headaches and those yeah. unknowns with, with yeah. others. And we started this with a very good label, and um, Marinka was uh, instrumental to that. Telling us the words for life, right? And and I think your trajectory, my trajectory, and being now in Canter, now kind of um, shoulder to shoulder, uh, it's me fascinating. So yeah. let's continue yeah. this. And thank you for the for the opportunity. I was I was going to say that our, our worlds are colliding in a, in a in a new way, which is that we are going to be working in the same uh, <laughs> school of public health. That's, that's another another way of thinking about worlds colliding. <laughs> Yes, and in a good way. So, yeah, to, to give the full name, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be joining the, the School of Public Health uh, where Shea is located and Camille is cool. So, it will be fantastic. And we'll continue our collaboration with all of our friends and throughout uh, the world, including the Georgians. But that remind, we started with this, with the student asking you, how do your paper become viral? So, I wanted to end our reflections saying, what will, after this hour of conversation, what what will will we tell back to the student? What will uh, instead of reflections back to them, these early career people, their fears, uh, their uh, pressure to to impress and to publish and to demonstrate that they're a robust, solid academic in this very uncertain world? So, any any thoughts on that? In I think the, the is to say, really know whom your audience is, know mm. where they are in their head or socially or politically or conceptually know how to reach them um, with with what you write whether it's a research paper or a short commentary um, or a big multi-country study know whom you are trying to influence mm. and really sharpen hone your message so that it, it gets them and if let me jump into that comment then because that also and again removes the pressure right so you're not trying to impress your peers i mean we need that for promotion but actually if you make you want to make your work impactful you need to reach out to your audience and you need to reach out to those who need the research that you are communicating you are presenting to the world so if you publish research to convince your peer 
uh, that we need to uh, rethink that, right? So I'm going to publish something to impact my message. But hang on a second. What, what's your audience? Why are we doing this in, in, in general? And we started with one question, but the more kind of we remove the threads or keep pulling the threads, uh, it's, it's, it's big, it's complex, it's unsatisfactory in the broader goal. But, uh, and as I tell my students, just uh, celebrate your small gains, right? Celebrate yeah. your accomplishments. And you have to build that layer of building it for yourself and, and your own smaller networks that you're doing your work as best as possible and, uh, and things will get better from there. Make sure you subscribe to The Scan so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We can't wait to bring you all the latest news and research in global health.